Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Amen. If you were with us last week, then you know that we have moved on to a new book of the Bible, a new epistle, that of 1 Peter. And we return to it this morning as we read 1 Peter 1, the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Please be seated. Well, historians call them turning points, significant events or people that shaped and influenced a society. When it comes to the United States of America, we can think of several turning points. We can think of 1492, Columbus sailing the ocean blue. You think of 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. 1790, the start of the Industrial Revolution. 1820, the Great Awakening. 1861, the Civil War. 1908, Henry Ford and the Model T. December 7th, 1941, a date that will live in infamy, the attack of Pearl Harbor, and of course, more recently, 9-11, and perhaps many others, but significant turning points in history. And it's interesting to think, perhaps speculate, what would be like if these events didn't happen? What would America be like today? Or what if these ended differently than how we know that they have ended. There's a popular TV show out right now that is based on the Americans and the Allies losing World War II. And America is, at least as is depicted in this show, subdivided by Nazi Germany and the Japanese. And that's Interesting to think about how our world would be different if that was really true. But most of the time, if we are honest, we do not think too often about history or these life-changing, culture-shaping events. However, these events that took place in the past very much shape our present reality. Life as we know it today. And spiritually speaking, it is the same. When we talk about the gospel, we are talking about something that took place a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. It's a historical event that happened in time and space long before 
any of us were around. And so we might think it's strange, or perhaps outsiders would think it's strange, that we'd put so much emphasis on something that took place that many years ago. However, the historical reality of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a turning point, it is the turning point. Not only the turning point of our life individually, it is the turning point of all of eternity. It's absolutely and utterly shapes our present and future reality. And so as we return this morning to the introduction of Peter's epistle, it is these gospel realities that Peter wants to emphasize from the onset. These glorious realities, these wonderful truths that not only go back to the crucifixion of Christ, but really back to all of eternity. And yet it's these past events, these past realities that are to be a great encouragement and even give us a greater purpose for our present life. And so last week, having looked at from who and to whom this epistle was written and who received it, we return to ask the question, for what purpose? For what purpose does Peter write? And he writes to give the glorious truth of the gospel, the hope of salvation. And we see here that this salvation is all of God. Last week we saw that Peter writes to those that he describes as the elect exiles of the dispersion. Those exiles or those refugees living outside of their homeland, having experienced persecution, they fled Israel. And yet now in their present situation, they find themselves in much of the same. And you can imagine how utterly discouraging that must have been. They fled persecution, now only to find more persecution where they presently are. And much of the persecution they are now enduring is because of their faith. It's directly related to the fact that they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter's goal in writing this letter is to encourage these young Christians, this, these new churches that are, are newly established. And it's interesting to, to see how Peter goes about his encouragement to these people that would otherwise be discouraged with what is taking place. Notice he does not say, hang in there, friends. You can do it. Everything will be fine. Turn that frown upside down. There's sunnier days ahead. He doesn't say, you might be knocked down, but you'll get back up again. He doesn't say, pull yourself up and dust yourself off. He does not say, you may think there's a lot wrong with you, but in reality, there's a lot right with you. He says, none of those things. 
He gives none of those platitudes, no cheap sayings here, no empty promises, no vain hopes. No, Peter gives them real hope. He gives them real meaning. He gives them real purpose because he points them to a reality outside of themselves. He points them to the reality of their salvation. He points them to the guarantees of the gospel, to a salvation that is all of God. He does not say, you are great. He says, he is great. He does not even say that your circumstances will change. No, he points them to the one that never changes. And Peter is dogmatic about this. And as we begin this morning, we we need to think about that. We need to meditate upon that. Where is it that we find encouragement in our life? When we face the, the difficulties of this world, do we look to ourselves? If we do, there's not much hope there. There's not much meaning. We need to look to something greater than ourselves. And the same goes for as we give encouragement to others that may be going through difficult circumstances. We shouldn't sound like a a hallmark greeting card. We need to sound like Peter, who roots his encouragement in God and in the gospel. And notice he, he roots this encouragement in election. He says to the readers of this letter that they are elect, that they are chosen. And this might be seen as something that is taboo in the church. This is seen oftentimes as something that is too controversial to talk about, too divisive, because it's often equated with Calvinism, and so we shouldn't talk about such things as that. Well, we need to talk about everything that the Bible talks about. And the Bible surely talks about this. Now we must say as a caveat, we, we know those types of people, perhaps you are or, or hopefully once were at some time but are no longer what we would call a, a, a rabid Calvinist. Those people, you know who they are. Those people that invited John Calvin into their heart. Say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, but you know the type, do you not? Those that think that if you do not see all of the five points of Calvinism in every scripture, then you're a heretic. The mission to evangelize everyone to reform theology. I have a confession to make. That was me at one time. When I was a young college student and going to a Christian liberal arts college that was as Arminian as the day was long, and I was on a mission along with several of my friends to change it because I knew that I was right and they were wrong, and I was out to prove it. It's probably best that I was just caged for a while. We know the type, perhaps we were that type, and we're not called to that. But at the same time, we're not called to shy away from this truth and from this doctrine either. Because Peter surely does not. Literally in the Greek, it reads, Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, elect. His first word to them is elect or election. And if this term, if this doctrine is so controversial that we cannot find hope and encouragement in it, then we are missing the purpose. This should be an encouraging doctrine to us. And so what does it mean then to be elect? Well, Peter goes on here to give the realities of this election with these three uh, phrases in verse 2. The first is that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does foreknowledge mean? Well, it means that God foreknew in advance, knew beforehand those that would be his own. You might ask, before what? Well, before the foundation of the world. In fact, he knew it from all of eternity. Long before he created. Long before he created the earth or the sky or the sun or the moon. Long before he created Adam or Eve or or you or me. In fact, there was never a time that he did not know. He knew from all of eternity. That is the foreknowledge that Peter speaks of. Now, some want to take this term of foreknowledge to mean that God foresaw those that would be his own. That he looked down the corridor of time, knowing all things, knowing what we would do and the decision that we would make. And therefore, those that believed in Christ, those that made the right choice, had faith in Christ, those were the ones then that he redeemed, that he elect. From all of eternity. He based his choice. On their choice of Christ. That sounds good. But has many problems. It's flawed. Because it bases. God's decisions. On man's decisions. Therefore making God dependent. God contingent upon man. And we know that that is not the truth. In fact, it's just the opposite. We are the one that's dependent upon God. We are contingent, not God. He is forever the Almighty that does whatever He so desires to do. Furthermore, it bases salvation on what man has done rather than what God has done. And if that were true, if it was based upon what we have done, then we would have something to boast in. We have made the right choice, whereas others did not. Making ourselves somehow smarter or more righteous. And yet we know that's not the truth. We have nothing to boast in. Salvation is by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. And so this is a complete misunderstanding of what foreknowledge means. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this same doctrine. And it's interesting that both Peter and Paul begin their letters talking about this. As a way to establish everything else that they're going to say. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Notice not according to our will but according to his will. He predestined 
and he adopted. But we shouldn't think of this will or this foreknowledge that Peter speaks of as just kind of cold determinism. No, it is a choice rooted in love. Notice what Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 1. In love he predestined. And that's what we should see even here with this word foreknowledge. As we said before, to, to know is to love. To love is to know. And therefore God set his love, his electing covenantal love upon his people before the foundation of the world. It says of the same thing of, of God's electing love in Deuteronomy chapter 7, speaking of Israel. It says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, not because you are more in number than any other people, but rather because the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Notice the connection there. The Lord chose you because he loves you. And then he goes on to say, he loves you because he loves you. And that is the only reason that we can find why God would elect. It's because he chose to do so out of his love. Out of the nature, out of the characteristic of who he is. Not because of something in us, far from it. And yet God chose to set His love upon His church, upon His bride. Yesterday I conducted a a wedding right here in this very place. Not once did I say to the groom, "Are, are, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to love this one? Only this one? How about all the rest? Don't you know there's a lot more women out there in the world? There's a lot more fish in the sea? Why are you being so exclusive? Why are you being so narrow? No, of course not. He didn't have to choose any. But he did. He chose this one to marry. And set his love upon her. And said... This is the one that I want to spend my life with. This is the one that I want to marry. And no one faulted him for it. Rather, we gloried in it. We were captivated by it. And the bride's eyes were radiant. And her face was full of joy. Because she was the one that was loved. She was the beloved. She was the chosen one. And that's what Peter is saying here. You out of all the people of the earth are chosen, are beloved, known and loved by God. And so too, let us marvel and be captivated by that fact. That God would set his love upon us. That we are elect, chosen, beloved. If we miss that point, then we're missing the whole point of this doctrine. Well, then he goes on to say, not only according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but in the sanctification of the Spirit. The sanctification that Peter speaks about here is that which sanctifies, that sets apart, that makes the believer holy. 
And they're made holy because the third person of the Trinity comes down and indwells the believer. Just like God came down and indwelt the tabernacle and indwelt the temple. So too, what Peter is saying here is that the Holy Spirit comes down and sanctifies, makes holy, sets apart you as the believer, you as the chosen one, you as the elect one. It goes on to say in chapter 2 that the believers are a spiritual house, equating them to the temple itself calls them holy. And thus they are, thus we are, by the sanctification of the Spirit, that we are marked out. We see this chiefly when we see the sacrament of baptism. It's a setting apart. It's making a distinction. It's being, if I could put it this way, being trademarked, branded by the Spirit. We understand Branding, we understand trademark, do we not? Perhaps on your shirt or on your tie or on your glasses, you have a, a logo or a name of a company. Why is that on there? Because it demonstrates where it comes from. And they trademark their, their name or their logo so that no one else can use it, so that there can be no counterfeit goods. It, guarantees that it is real, that it is genuine, and it is quality because they put their name upon it. And the Lord does the same with us through the Holy Spirit. That's why we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've been branded with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, this one is mine. This one belongs to me. All the promises of God are yes and amen. They are made a reality for this child. Holy Spirit says, this one is genuine. He is elect. He is chosen. He is a Christian. He is a child of God. We are marked out. We are sanctified by the spirits. Third, then, he goes on. That there's a purpose. That purpose is for us to be obedient to Jesus Christ. That there must be a response on our part. And some might say, well, see, see, there has to be a response. There must be obedience. Just as Jesus called his disciples and, and then they left their nets and followed him. They, they made a choice. They were obedient to Jesus. And that's really what makes the difference between the elect and the non-elect which I do not disagree. But as I said before, you can't ignore what comes before this. Namely, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And it's the renewing, generating work of the Holy Spirit, as it says here, for or resulting in obedience to Jesus Christ. In other words, those other things must take place before we rightly respond to the call of Jesus Christ. We must be made spiritually alive before we can have any spiritual desire whatsoever. But we must respond. We must have obedience. And that's where we need to, to flip to the other side. And, and we always want to be equally offending from this pulpit. 
We want to offend one side, but we need to offend the other side if there's mistruth or there's error. And there's some that are utter Calvinists or hyper Calvinists that say, well, because God is sovereign, then we really don't have to do anything. We just have to be passive. Election will, will do whatever it needs to do. You're either elect or you're not. Nothing can change that. No. We must respond. There must be obedience. If those other things are true, then they are demonstrated in our obedience, in our response to Jesus Christ. Notice I never say from this pulpit, if you're elect this morning, then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you're chosen, then this word is for you, that you need to be obedient to Christ. No, I say to all people, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say to every one of us, And we must trust in him. We must be obedient to him. Knowing full well that all of those things must take place before we would respond rightly. But nevertheless, if the Spirit has sanctified us, has set us apart, then it must result in obedience. And it will. Finally, then, it says that it's obedient to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Earlier in our Old Testament reading, we read from Exodus 24, where Moses sprinkled the people with blood. That was a sign of the sealing of the covenant, being made right with God, being put in a right relationship with God. We need that forgiveness of sins to be in right relationship with God. Otherwise, what does God have to do with us as sinful people? And we have that forgiveness. We have that cleansing. Not by the blood of bulls and goats. Not by the blood of a lamb, but by the blood of the lamb. The perfect lamb. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that which we are sprinkled with. And it is that which makes all of this effective. It comes at the very end, but it demonstrates the length and the cost that God went through for us. That Christ shed his own blood for our soul so that we would be made right with him, both now and for all eternity. And so notice all of those phrases. Notice all of those glorious realities. Three small phrases, but they are packed with theology and truth. Three phrases that should give us great encouragement, that should encourage your soul this morning. Three phrases of past events that should have tremendous impact on your present reality, your present life right now. Why is that? Well, it's because this is a divine doctrine. And what I mean by this is it's all of God. Notice, perhaps you did, that all three persons of the Trinity are involved here in our salvation. The foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And therefore we are saved on the authority of the Father through the accomplishments of Christ, by the application of the Spirit. Let me say that again. We are saved on the authority of the Father through the accomplishments of Christ, by the application of the Spirit. All persons of the Godhead are involved. And they're involved in what? Our salvation. 
The whole God is wholly involved in saving the whole man. And if God has done and is doing and will do all of this, then should that not encourage our soul? If God will do all of that, then do you think that God will forget you now? That is what Peter wants to begin with. That's what he wants to establish as the firm foundation. It's the hope that he wants to give to those that are persecuted and those that are struggling. As Paul would say elsewhere, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not give us all things in him? If he's given us the the greatest thing, the most precious thing, then everything else is as nothing. If he gave you his son, will he not also give you salvation or complete that salvation? If he gave you his son, will he not take care of you now? Will he forget you? If he's given you his son, will he not provide all things that you stand in need of? And so why worry? Why doubt? You have Christ, and in him you have all that you need. Now and forever, you are elect by the almighty triune God. And therefore, not only is this a divine doctrine, this is an encouraging doctrine. Peter doesn't say these things because he's a belligerent Calvinist. He says these things because he wants to give comfort. And the source of comfort and encouragement is God himself. As we heard last week, he's, he's writing to strangers and exiles. And we too are strangers to this world. And we should never be so comfortable in this world that we think this world is our home. And as a result, then we're going to be seen as outsiders. At times, we're going to be seen as nobodies and sometimes worse than nobodies. Perhaps even a menace to society itself. But we need to be reminded throughout all of that, throughout of that persecution, through all of that name calling, that we have been given the greatest name. We've been given the greatest blessing. That of being elect, that of being chosen. And not just elect, but elect in Christ. Sons and daughters, because of the great Son, the Son of God. That God has secured salvation for us and has done so by his sovereign election and choice as Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 for those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified those whom he justified he also glorified notice it goes from predestined all the way to glorified and everything in between and therefore he goes on to say so what can separate us from the love of God It's all of Christ. It's all of grace. You're in his hands. You're in his love. And therefore, not only is this to be an encouraging doctrine, this is to be a life-altering doctrine. Oftentimes, people will ask that question, well, how how do I know? How do I know if I'm one of these elects? We're not there from the foundation of the earth. We may not even know the point of our actual conversion. There's no halo around our head that sets us apart and makes us distinct from anyone else. How do we know if the blood of Jesus Christ 
has been sprinkled for the forgiveness of our sins? Well, I think we know because, as we said from the very beginning, that these realities, these past realities, utterly and radically change our present reality. That these things that Peter talks about are not just trivial, not merely interesting facts that we talk about in secret societies filled with smoke-filled rooms. No, these are the rock and foundation of our life. These are the truths that breathe the very life into our soul, that shape all of our being. They alter and change all of who we are. And therefore, we respond to them. Think about that. Think about these truths, that we are foreknown by God. It means that we're known by God. And as a result, we know him. And we know him in a personal way. We've been sanctified by the Spirit, and as a result, we are to live a sanctified life, holy and set apart for the Lord. We're made obedient by the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. And as a result, we're obedient to Him and His ways. And we confess that blood and that blood alone for the forgiveness of our sins. So you ask, how do we know? How can't we know? It's changed everything. It's like saying, what's the difference between a tree that's dead and alive? Like a light bulb that is working or is burnt out. The difference between a car that is running and a car that is not. The difference is life and death. It's readily seen. It's because of those past events or our everything, now and always. If that's true for you this morning, I hope it is, then Peter, by the Holy Spirit, calls you elect. And that makes all the difference. Because election is a doctrine that is divine, it's a doctrine that's encouraging, it's a doctrine that is life-altering. It is a turning point in our lives. As I said from the beginning, Several turning points in American history, 1776, 1861, 1941. Where would you mark your turning points? The moment of your conversion, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the foreknowledge of God and the annals of history? Yes, all of those and so many more. And yet there is one great turning point that is yet to come when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again as he gathers his elect from the north and the south and the east and the west. And such are you. Such are you on the authority of God the Father through the accomplishments of the Son and by the application of the Holy Spirit. If you will obey this day, if you will place your faith and trust in this awesome and triune God who has and is doing a mighty work in you. And as Peter concludes this section, I conclude this morning. May grace and peace through this word, through this reality, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we need that grace and peace. And it is through the gospel and the gospel alone that we find that grace and we find that peace. And Lord, how good that is to hear that we who were once far off have been brought near because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And through Christ, we have that grace and peace. And may it be multiplied to us this day. We pray in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.